Listen, honey, when you land, can we check into a hotel or leave the kids with your parents? Order some room service? You're on, Lieutenant. I'll see you in about a half an hour, honey. Extra Daily Planet Extra! Jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle bell rock. Christmas Eve. Is there a cop on duty around here? Airport police. Go get him. Jingle bells swing and jingle bells ring. Washington, D.C. International Airport. What's this about? Oh, just a feeling I have. Ouch. When you get those feelings, insurance companies start to go bankrupt. The tower's lost control. Instrument landing system is down. Backup systems won't come up. We've got blizzard conditions. Zero visibility. Attention all controllers. We have a code red alert. There's panic in the air. This is a professional mercenary. You got the world's biggest drug dealer on his way here now. What do you need, a slide rule to figure this out? You get the hell out of my office before I throw you out of my damn airport. And terror on the ground. Who is this? Who I am is unimportant. What I want is very important. Oh, we are just up to our neck in terrorists again, John. But for police officer John McLean, it's just another Christmas. You're the wrong guy in the wrong place at the wrong time. Story of my life. Caught ourselves for maybe two hours. After that, those planes low on fuel aren't going to be circling. They're going to be dropping on the White House lawn. Any attempt to restore your systems will be met by severe penalties. Somebody out there! It's for Clay! Blow it up! Wife's plane? They're going to run out of fuel in 90 minutes. What are you going to do? Whenever I can. Last time, it blew you through the back wall of the theater. Got a cowboy right too rough? I don't like the fly. What are you doing here? I don't like the lose either. This time, ah! it'll blow you sky high. Is what you expected? No. This is just the beginning. On July 4th, Die Harder. Bruce Willis, Die Hard 2. The man of... Screen. Merry Christmas, everybody. Welcome to episode 35 of Man of Screen Extra. I am your host, Mike Zumo, and this is my annual Christmas episode. As I do every year, I look at something that is not Superman-related, but it does have its own connection. Last year, I went with Lethal Weapon, which takes place around Christmas time, and... Obviously, the big Superman connection there is Richard Donner, who directed Superman the movie and part of Superman 2. But this year, I will be covering Die Hard 2, which has a a very, uh, like I said, small Superman connection. Uh, Robert Costanzo, who did two guest appearances on Lois and Clark. His first was in the episode Foundling. He played a character called Louie. I don't know the best way to describe Louie, but... uh, He's one of those guys who kind of knows what's going on on the street, and he helps Clark uh, get some stuff back that was stolen from his apartment. And he's also a gun shop owner in what many consider, and I among them, to be the best episode of the series, Tempest Fugitive, in season two. The episode in which uh, that introduces us to Lane Davies' uh, Tempest, and he goes back in time to kill Superman as a baby. So they're not big roles. This is not a big role either for him. But it's enough that 
I can make the connection from Superman to Die Hard 2. And I'm going to be honest, I could have made a connection back to the original Die Hard film, which among a lot of my friends is the ultimate Christmas movie. But you know what? Everyone talks about Die Hard as a Christmas movie. And it does have two Superman connections, one straight Superman connection and one you have to work for a little bit. The uh, police chief in uh, Die Hard, or the assistant chief Robertson in in Die Hard is played by Paul Gleason, who played Henry Harrison in the first season episode, The Ides of Metropolis. And if you want to work a little bit harder, Hart Bachner was also Ethan in 1984's Supergirl. In uh, Die Hard, Bachner played uh, Ellis, the uh, the kind of sleazeball who's trying to move in on uh, Bonnie Bedelia's Holly and uh, ends up dead after he tries to make a deal with Hans Gruber. So I could have done Die Hard, but you know what? Everyone talks about Die Hard. So I guess it's time to give Die Hard 2 its, uh, its due, which is by no means an indictment of on Die Hard. I love that movie as much as anybody does. And Die Hard 2 is a lesser film, but it's still good. I still enjoy it, but it's not It's not the first movie. And it raises the stakes. Instead of just 30 hostages in, an, in, an, in a building, it's uh, like 30,000 at an airport. And they're not even hostages. The hostages are really up in the, up in the sky. And uh, bigger set pieces. You know, previously a sequel, bigger everything, but not necessarily better. But it's still Bruce Willis as John McClane in over his head and trying to navigate situations uh, that are way above his uh, weight class. And you're going to see that a little bit in this movie. So before I get to the uh, task at hand, uh, coverage of Die Hard 2, I have feedback to address. Feedback is from Dave McElvenny. Dave was writing in on the previous Man of Screen Extra, which only dropped a week ago. Man of Screen Extra episode 34, shared fandom. Uh, Haley and I's uh, experience uh, with phase two of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Greetings, Mike. I really enjoy this series of shared fandom episodes. I love that you and Haley get to share the enjoyment of the Marvel movies, among other things. That's a wonderful gift you're giving each other, and I imagine it's one that will continue and grow as time goes on. I can't help but think about my own dad when I listen to these episodes. Not that he shared many fandoms with me or my siblings, except for a love for the Phillies with one of my brothers, and for the Eagles with me and one of my sisters. But he certainly was supportive of, and in some cases proud of all of us in various ways. He was a pretty typical 50s dad, working hard, sometimes working two or three jobs, without a mom to support a large family, six kids over the span of 20 years, born between 1949 and 1969. I don't think he ever really understood the love of comics my brothers and I shared, but he never disparaged it or discouraged it, as some parents did. And he always pleased uh, whenever any of us boys or girls went out for sports, even though he didn't, we didn't really show much promise or talent. It makes me smile to listen to you talk about how you watch these movies and talk about them with Haley, and even how sometimes you and she like different things. The fact that she has a different but strong opinions means she's really a fan and experiences and differences of opinion can lead to fun discussions. Hope this continues for a long time, and I'm happy that you share some of this with your listeners. Thank you. Live long and prosper, Dave McElvenny. Well, uh, thank you, Dave, for writing in. I really don't have much to add except for uh, Dave's uh, comments about uh, thinking as bad as dad when he listens to these episodes. And, you know, not all, you know, father, fathers and sons, fathers and daughters share similar fandoms. Uh, my own fandoms are kind of spread between both my parents a little bit. The only fandom I really share with my mother is in, I'm not really calling her fandom on her rent. She doesn't follow it like I do is uh, I got my uh, being a Mets fan from her or my grandfather, her father. 
from my dad comes my uh, love of science fiction, you know, things like Superman and DC Comics and Star Wars, Star Trek, Indiana Jones, all of that stuff came from him. He's uh, lost track of a lot of this stuff as he's uh, gotten older. He, I, you know, our relationship now is not what it could be. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. So that's you know, not really all I'm going to say about that. But, you know, that's where my own, my own fandom comes from. So, yeah, Haley and I were definitely enjoying this. Uh, she's not going to be around uh, this particular weekend coming up. She's going to be up at her mother's for the next uh, week. So the plan is to watch our next uh, film on Christmas Eve, you know, because my sister and her and her husband aren't coming over until after they get out of work on Christmas Eve. So, and being uh, self-employed at the moment, I can kind of work my schedule around whatever. So we're probably going to do our next Marvel film, which I believe is Black Panther. Probably uh, sometime Thursday afternoon, being that she doesn't have school. So, but yeah, she uh, we like different things. Uh, we just watched uh, Doctor Strange uh, yesterday, and not my favorite. I am not a fan of the mystical, but she enjoyed Doctor Strange more than uh, I thought she would. So, and I enjoyed it more through her enjoyment. It's kind of uh, similar to my feelings for Rise of Skywalker, which I talked about. I do not think that's a great movie, but but that's the movie that birthed Haley's uh, Star Wars fandom. So I like that movie for the door that it opened more than I like the film itself. So it's kind of like Superman 4, too. I remember the experience of seeing it and enjoyed that far more than, you know, the film itself. So this is definitely something we're planning to continue for the immediate future. There's no there's no plans to stop. There's plenty of uh, movies that she wants to watch. Movies that I'm trying to get her to warm up to. It took some doing to get her to do all the Marvel films. I'm really trying to needle her toward Back to the Future. That's taking a little bit of effort. But, you know, then there are films we watch together that we just watch that obviously I don't talk about because they're just movies we watch. There are no strong feelings in either direction, you know. But some of the, the uh, discussions uh, we've had have been pretty fun. And uh, I may have a hankering to talk about The Mandalorian uh, coming up, so... These last couple of Man of Screen extras have kind of put a little bit of a delay in my recording episodes for the main show. So maybe once I get back on track, I'll double back to the uh, Mandalorian. So I think that was uh, Haley's first experience with me uh, having a nerdgasm while watching something. Those of you who've seen the ending know what I'm talking about. So I'm kind of rambling here. So let's uh, take a quick break. I'll play a podcast promo. When I come back, I'll start talking about Die Hard 2. Hang around, folks. It's Fade Out. Hosted by film fanatic Rob Kelly and a roster of special guests, Fade Out will examine the final films of Hollywood's brightest lights. Part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. All right, welcome back, folks. So, the second of the two Die Hard Christmas movies, Die Hard 2. Original release date, July 3rd, 1990. Directed by Rennie Harlan, the proud director of very few things that are worth watching. He uh, directed... uh, The other thing I can think of that Rennie Harlan directed that I've watched is Nightmare on Elm Street 4, the the Dream Master. It was definitely uh, where the uh, series started to uh, slide a little bit. Uh, John McTiernan, who had, had planned to direct this film, he also directed the first, but uh, he could not because of his commitment to directing Hunt for the Red October. I think he chose well. 
And uh, Rennie Harlan was hired after apparently Fox executives were impressed by his dailies of the adventures of Ford Fairlane, which I have not seen, but apparently uh, he was editing this and Adventures of Ford Fairlane concurrently. And according to IMDb, this film was released as what's described as a wet print, meaning it was sent shortly after it was completed. So they worked right up to release date almost on this one, about as late as they could. Well, the first writing credit from IMDb goes to Walter Wager. The uh, screenplay was adapted from Wager's 1987 novel, 58 Minutes. It has some of the same plot, but differs slightly. A cop must stop terrorists who take an airport hostage while his wife's plane circles overhead. Sounds familiar. And he has 58 minutes to do so before the plane crashes. And I do actually believe at one point, one of the characters, I believe it's uh, Trudeau, the uh, airport manager, does actually say that her plane has 58 minutes until it runs out of fuel. I think it's right after the uh, scene at the uh, dish array where uh, McLean is sitting on the step. Roderick Thorpe also got some credit as uh, creating certain original characters. So, as far as the movie goes, Stephen DeSouza, back from the first film, and Doug Richardson are credited for the screenplay. Doug, Doug Richardson doesn't have a ton of writing credits. And the cast. Start with the returners. Bruce Willis as John McLean. Bonnie Bedelia as Holly McLean. William Atherton as Thornburg. Reginald Vell Johnson as Al Powell. Interestingly enough... Uh, well, Johnson is fourth build, yet only appears in one scene on the phone with uh, McLean. Frank Nero is Esperanza. He is uh, a general of a fictional country. I believe uh, La Verde, which is uh, also a fictional country used in uh, Commando. I believe uh, Steven DeSouza also wrote Commando, and he used uh, La Verde there, too. It's been a while since I've watched that film. William Sadler as Stuart, which is very interesting seeing William Sadler here and... Uh, also thinking he's uh, death in the Bill and Ted movies. John Amos as Grant. Dennis Franz, probably best known as his role uh, as a uh, detective or whatever he is, Andy uh, Sipowitz as uh, Carmine Lorenzo, which between this and listening to uh, Zachy Assange's podcast and being on his Facebook page uh, is kicking, reminding me that I still haven't watched NYPD Blue. Art Evans is Barnes. He's kind of the airport tech guy. Fred Thompson is Trudeau. Tom Bauer is Marvin. That's uh, Marvin is uh, kind of a, I guess, a custodian or something, kind of hanging out in the basement, has all the maps to the airport and whatnot, helps McLean out quite a bit. He's kind of like this movie's uh, version of Argyle, just uh, useful. Sheila McCarthy as Samantha Coleman. She's uh, the news reporter. Darn Harvey as Garber. Why do I want to say Garber is uh, Thornburg's uh, partner up on the airplane? Tony Ganyos is Baker. Peter Nelson was Thompson. Robert Patrick was O'Reilly, and Robert Patrick was only in the one scene, the battle at the communications array that I mentioned before. This is about a year before Robert Patrick would uh, come to fame as the T-1000 in Terminator 2 Judgment Day, which I talked about about a year or so ago, I think now, on uh, Is It Jaws with uh, Paul Spataro, Dr. Bill Robinson, and Scott Gardner. So You can find that over on the Is It Jaws feed. It's episode 87 of It in Jaws. came out uh, November 10th, 2019. Mick Cunningham as Sheldon. John Leguizamo plays Burke, who, you know, I was kind of scrolling through IMDb as I watched the movie yesterday, and uh, I saw Leguizamo in the cast, looked for him again, but uh, couldn't find him. And uh, even listened for his voice, but uh, that turned out futile because according to uh, Leguizamo in his autobiography, 
His role was intended to be much larger until the filmmakers realized how short he was. His part was cut down to one line, which was dubbed by someone else. He showed up about six years later in an executive decision, uh, also produced by Joel Silver, and he often described that as a uh, diehard on a plane. So that explains why I didn't hear uh, Leguizamo's distinctive voice. It didn't show up. So as far as the rest of the cast goes, uh, Tom Verica as Khan. John Costellos as Cochran, Bondi Curtis Hall as Miller, Mark Boone Jr. as Shockley, and Ken Baldwin as Mulkey, Don Charles McGovern as Lieutenant Sherman, Patrick O'Neill as Corporal Telford, and our Superman connection, Robert Costanzo as Sergeant Vito Lorenzo. I think I neglected to mention in uh, when I talked about Costanzo earlier is not only was he in those two Lois the Clark episodes, but he also played the role of Harvey Bullock in uh, the DC animated universe produced by Bruce Tim. Bullock mostly on Batman the Animated Series, but I believe he showed up, you know, once or twice in uh on the Superman series, probably in the World's Finest episode. So that is the cast. Uh a little bit of background on the film. Uh it takes place on Christmas Eve, uh two years after the events of the original Die Hard film, with uh McLean waiting for his wife Holly. Apparently they've reconciled to land at Washington's uh, Dallas International Airport when terrorists take over the the air traffic control system. And he has to stop them, save the planes and all the other flights. And, you know, he's putting up with a bunch of crap from the airport police and the military commander. And, of course, nobody wants his help. Nobody ever wants McLean's help, but they get it anyway. Obviously, the film was preceded by the original classic Christmas film. It's called that, Die Hard. And it's followed by uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance, which I saw in theaters with, with my father in 1995. And then after that, I backtracked back to Die Hard and Die Hard 2. And then uh, after a 12-year gap, the series uh, tries to not only come back, but it falls on its face a little bit with Live Free or Die Hard, which wasn't awful. But A Good Day to Die Hard was pretty awful. Perhaps today is a good day to die. That movie kind of fell on its face a little bit there. And as far as box office goes, the film exceeded all expectations by outdoing the uh, massive success of the first film. Probably most of that was on name value alone. The film had about a 62 to $70 million budget. Had a wide release of 2,507 theaters and made $21.7 million on opening weekend alone. On its way to $117.5 million domestically and $122.5 internationally, earning over $240 million worldwide, doubling that of Die Hard. It was re-released internationally in 1993 and made an additional $216,000, which totaled its gross to $240.2 million. Ironically, that puts it near the bottom of uh, the, the diehard box office rankings, which uh, as uh, the following three have all made growth over $300 million. Obviously, uh, the fourth and the fifth films are helped by inflation, but the uh, highest grossing of the diehard films was still Die Hard with a Vengeance, uh, which made about $366 million in 1995. So now for our synopsis, uh, which is brought to you by Wikipedia. On Christmas Eve in 1990, and we know it's 1990 because uh, it's referenced a couple times. At least uh, Holly telling uh, John that he has to wake up and smell the 90s. So uh, that's kind of indicating that it's at least 1990. And since this film came out in 1990, we'll say 1990. It's uh, very easy to uh, believe that this is the next year. But it's not as that was 1988, the first Die Hard film. So anyway, Christmas Eve, 1990, two years after the... Nakatomi Tower incident, former New York City police officer John McLean 
is uh, now working for the Los Angeles Police Department and is waiting at Dulles International Airport for his wife, Holly, to arrive from Los Angeles. Obviously, like I mentioned, uh, he and Holly had reconciled. Reporter Richard Thornburg, who exposed Holly's identity to Hans Gruber in, in Nakatomi Tower, is assigned to a seat across the aisle from her. No, you did not explain anything. All you did was shove me back here into this cattle car. Sir, you were told when you boarded that we were overbooked. Fine, done. I accept that. But why in hell can't I get the first-class meal my network paid for? Do you know who I am? Yes, we've all seen your program. Your episode, Flying Junkyards, was a very objective look at air traffic safety. It wasn't nearly as edifying as bimbos of the sky, was it, Connie? You think you're funny? You think you're funny? Fine. I've got your number. And I've got yours. So park it, sir. Mr. Thornburg, you cannot monopolize my time. You cannot put me near that woman. Excuse me? He means he's filed a restraining order against me. I'm not allowed within 50 feet of him. 50 yards? So, by keeping me in this section, you are violating a court order. I can sue you and this airline. That woman assaulted me, and she humiliated me in public. you do? Knocked out two of his teeth. Would you like some champagne? In the airport bar, McLean observes two men in army fatigues, behaving suspiciously and pursue them into a baggage area. After a shootout, McLean kills one of them, Oswald Cochran, while the other escapes. Learning that Cochran was believed to have been killed in action while serving in Honduras, McLean relates the situation to airport police captain Carmine Lorenzo, who bluntly dismisses his concerns. All right. We've got a body in the morgue that seems to have died twice. Assuming it's not a computer error, what do we assume? That somebody's about to seriously fuck with this airport. What the hell is that supposed to mean? I mean, I know we're dummies up here, McLean, so give us a little taste of your brilliant genius. I mean, you're talking about a hijacking, a robbery, or what? Look, I'm not sure. All I know oh, is... Oh, he's not sure. Well, I'm stunned. I gotta lie down. The only people to go to this much trouble are professionals. Not luggage thieves and not punks. Professional at what? What the fuck do you think this is, huh? The safety patrol here, this is the resume of a professional mercenary. You got the world's biggest drug dealer on his way here now. What do you need, a slide rule to figure this out? Or maybe another body in a zipper bag before you start asking questions? Hey, pal, you're the one that gave us that fucking body. Remember that. Yeah, I remember that. Lorenzo, have all your shift commanders report in now. What? You're not buying into this. I want them to report anything out of the ordinary, no matter how trivial. You got that? Yeah, I got it. Oh, my God. What? The runway. Son of a bitch. Look. What the hell? It's shutting down. Jesus Christ. Former U.S. Special Forces Colonel William Stewart and other former members of his unit established a base in a church near Dulles. They hack into the air traffic control system, sever communication with the planes, and deactivate the runway lights, leaving Dulles Air Traffic Control powerless to land aircraft. Their goal is to rescue from General Ramon Esperanza, a drug lord and dictator of Valverde, who is being extradited to the United States to stand trial on drug trafficking charges. Attention Dulles Tower. Attention. They say that blind men become very attentive by way of compensation. Now that you're both blind and deaf, I think I've got your attention. 
I'm aware that your recorders are active. So I'll be quick. You can play me back later to your heart's content. How did you get on this line? Who is this? Who I am is unimportant. What I want... Well, if you don't want those planes to start splashing into the Potomac as they run out of fuel, what I want is very important. The plane will be landing at this airport in 58 minutes. It is FM-1, Foreign Military-1. Now, I'm sure you gentlemen are well aware of the unique nature Esperanza. of this flight and the importance of its cargo. This plane will not be met by anyone. It will land on a runway of my designation where it will remain isolated and unapproached. That will conclude my interest in this aircraft and your responsibility for it. At the same time, I want a 747 cargo conversion fully fueled and placed at my disposal. You have two more minutes to advise your inbound aircraft to hold at their outer radio marker. After that, you will be able to receive only. Any attempt to restore your systems will be met by severe penalties. He's bluffing. Damn it, you can't do this. I am doing this. With his wife on one of the planes circling above Washington, D.C., with too little fuel to be redirected, McLean prepares to fight the terrorist, allying himself with a janitor, Marvin, to gain larger access to the airport. Dulles Communications Director Leslie Barnes heads to an unfinished antenna array with a SWAT team to re-establish communication with the planes, but are ambushed by Stewart's henchmen, and the SWAT team is killed, is killed in the ensuing firefight. McLean rescues Barnes and kills Stewart's men. Stewart retaliates by recalibrating the instrument landing system, then impersonating air traffic controllers to crash a British jetliner, killing everyone on board. A U.S. Army Special Forces team led by Major Grant is called in. By listening in on a two-way radio that was dropped by one of Stewart's henchmen, McLean finds out that Esperanza, having killed his captors, and now piloting the plane carrying Dulles. With Marvin's aid, McLean reaches the aircraft before Stewart's henchmen. Trapped in the cockpit, the mercenaries throw in grenades, but McLean escapes via the ejection seat seconds before the grenades detonate. Barnes helps McLean to locate the mercenaries' hideout, and they tell Grant and his team to raid the location, but the mercenaries escape on snowmobiles. McLean pursues them, but is stunned to discover the mercenaries' guns are loaded with blanks, concluding that the Special Forces team are, in fact, Stewart's subordinates. McLean demands Lorenzo intercept the Boeing 747 in which the mercenaries will escape. Lorenzo refuses to listen until an extremely fed-up McLean fires at the captain with a blank gun, thus proving his story. Stewart's got some explosives on the equipment in the church rigged with a remote. Grant? Grant's boys are gonna kill that son of a bitch and get it from him. They're gonna do that. They're gonna get on the same goddamn plane with him and take off with him. Get the fuck out of here. When the army can't do it, he must have loaded that unit with his own men. Are you nuts? That firefight at the house. Tides go to jerk us off, buying some time. McLean, you are completely around the fucking bend, you know that? And you know what else? You're under arrest. You must These are the bullets they used out there tonight. Blanks. Jesus Christ. This is Chief Lorenzo. I want every officer recalled and assembled in body armor and full weaponry in the motor pool in five minutes. It's time to kick ass. Aboard Holly's flight, a suspicious Stormberg is monitoring airport radio traffic and learns about the situation from a secret transmission to the circling planes from Barnes. He phones at a sensational and exaggerated take on what is happening. I'm one of the thousand people who has been circling our nation's capital under the assumption that whatever problem was going on far below was a normal one. 
But the truth is far from normal. The truth is terrifying. This is a recording of a conversation between Dulles Tower and a captive aircraft over. Since then, this reporter has learned that the terrorists have virtual control of the entire airport. A fact that the authorities have suppressed. The terrorists promised more bloodshed unless their demands are met. And now that the special army commandos have arrived at the airport, the likelihood of a full-scale and deadly battle is dangerously close. That stupid, arrogant son of a bitch. It's all over the airport. And unfortunately, they may not be the last. The horrifying fact is that no one is safe, either in the plains above Dulles or in the terminal below. The threat of a new and higher body count at the airport hangs over the heads of everyone, and the holiday season of peace and love has become a nightmare. At least the truth is not among the hostages because I, Richard Thornburg, just happened to be here to put his life and talent on the line for humanity and country. And if this should be my final broadcast, I... Amen to that, Dick. Dick! We're live, Dick. Where are you now? Dick! Leading to panic and preventing the officers from reaching the escape plane until Holly subdues Thornburg with a stun gun. McLean hitches a rider in a noose helicopter that drops him off on the wing of the taxiing mercenary 747. He jams the jet inboard aileron with his jacket, preventing the plane from taking off. Grant fights McLean, but is knocked off the wing and falls into an engine, killing him. Stewart succeeds in knocking McLean off the plane and removing McLean's jacket, but fails to notice that McLean had opened the fuel hatch. McLean uses his cigarette lighter to ignite a trail of fuel, which leads up to the jet and causes it to explode, killing the mercenaries, Esperanza, and Stewart. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. The circling planes use the fire trail to help them land, as the other passengers on board are rescued. Holly and McLean happily embrace. All right, so I'm going to uh, take a uh, podcast from a promo break right here, and when I come back, we'll go through my notes on Die Hard 2. Hang around, folks. I'm Captain Benjamin Sisko. Welcome to Deep Space Nine. Red alert! All crew members report to battle stations. Red alert. Shields up. What shields? You start fleet officers! Now start acting like it! Oh, it's just Garrett. Plain, simple, Garrett. Dax, we might have just discovered the first stable wormhole known to exist. The wormhole does bring them our way, doesn't it? Everyone wants a piece of the new frontier. This will shortly become a leading center of commerce and of scientific exploration. Starfleet, one of our most important posts. Quite a motley crew you've assembled here, Benji. Listen to The Prophets, a Deep Space Nine podcast. And here are your hosts, Andrew Leyland and Paul Spataro. Bloody hell. Oh, I love a woman in uniform. Only on All right, welcome back, folks. Uh, now for some of my notes on uh, this film, Die Hard 2. You know, a lot of the merchandise and even the case that houses the DVD, my DVD of this movie, I this is one of the a three-film box set of Die Hard, this film, and Die Hard with a Vengeance. I bought a three-movie collector's edition. Uh, I believe it's called the Five Star Collection. 
DVD still. It's one of the first DVDs I believe I bought. Probably in that group of a whole bunch of DVDs I bought when I got my DVD player in 2000 of of this film, the original Die Hard and Die Hard with the Vengeance. Obviously, the last two films came later. I do own Live Free and Die Hard, but not the fifth. I'm sure if I was really dying to watch it, I could find it somewhere, but I'm not. So, obviously, our Superman connection is front and center right at the start of the film. Uh, there's a cop uh, who's uh, giving McLean a ticket and towing his mother-in-law's car is uh, Robert Costanzo, who, like I mentioned, did a couple of guest spots on Lois and Clark and with Harvey Bullock. The movie doesn't explain why John arrived early with the kids. I'm guessing Holly had to work. That seemed to be a bit of the problem they were having in the first film, and it seems as though they have reconciled. He's now working in Los Angeles as a member of the LAPD. Interestingly enough, out of the five Die Hard films, only one of them, Die Hard with a Vengeance, shows McLean on his home turf. Obviously, L.A. would become his home turf, at least for a little while, after the events of Nakatomi. But at that point, it was not his home turf. And uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance, uh, he's back in New York as a cop. And uh, he's still working for the NYPD in Die Hard 4, in Live Free or Die Hard. And he goes to Washington in that movie, and then goes to Russia in the 5th. So, again, not on his home turf. This time, he's in an airport. And I believe it's this movie that establishes McLean's aversion to technology, as you will see him have trouble with the fax machine, get irritated at his beeper, and uh, Holly is talking to this uh, woman uh, next to him on the plane, and she mentions John's aversion to technology. So you could say the Nakatomi computer in the first film kind of shows that too, but who had touchscreens in 1988? I didn't see a touchscreen until much later, until at least a decade or more after that. When I got my first job at ShopRite, this computer had a touchscreen. And that was 97, I think. And by the time I owned something that had a touchscreen on it, it was probably 10 years after that. So I find that this film taps into Christmas a lot more than the first film does. I mean, I mean, yeah, the first film was a Christmas party and there's the whole ho, ho, ho. Now I have a machine gun bit. But look here in Washington, it's snowing. And I believe there's just more references to uh, Christmas especially with all with the, uh, the uh, packed holiday travel. I mean, when you think about the party in Nakatomi in the first film, that could have been for anything. It didn't have to be Christmas. It just was. They could have been celebrating a huge deal that they made. It's not out of the ordinary for corporations like that to do that. But Christmas there, Christmas here, makes it a Christmas movie. And uh, the stakes are are higher. The first film, only 30 or so hostages from the party. Here, there are probably about 30 planes in the air all being held hostage with hundreds of people aboard. So, more doesn't mean better, it just means more. And, like I said, it, this is a, a lesser film than the first one. A little more action-packed, I found. While there was action in the first film, I found the action a lot more... I don't know if I want to say subdued in the first film, but definitely a lot more stealth being used, and I found it a lot more suspenseful than action-packed, really. So, of course... uh. What are the odds that McLean gets sucked into the same kind of situation on two out of three Christmases and on opposite sides of the country? And I do like that later on, he does comment on that when he says, Man, I can't fucking believe this. Another basement, another elevator. How can the same shit happen to the same guy twice? And yeah, he's right. And the one thing, you know, as much as, you know, William Atherton just plays a great asshole character, 
you know, he did it in Ghostbusters. He did it in the first film. He does it here. But and as much as I like his character and even the part he played in the story a little bit, it kind of stretches coincidence that he's on the same plane as Holly. And, of course, he gets seated near her. You know, that kind of stretched coincidence a little bit. You know, one of those things that you say it happened because it's in the script. Probably something that wouldn't happen in uh, real life. But I do love his uh, fear of Holly when he's forced to sit next to her. And he has a restraining order. So maybe Holly had some kind of a misdemeanor assault charge or something. Or I guess he could have he filed one with no charges, I guess. But, you know, I don't think... Uh, she wants to be within 50 yards of him. And uh, when they see how much of an asshole he is, I really liked how the flight attendants were real nice to Holly after that. They, they really loved the fact that she uh, kind of punched him right in the nose. So here's uh, Colonel Stewart starting his plot. He was uh, the first we saw of Colonel Stewart in this movie was at the very beginning, watching a report about uh, Esperanza being uh, escorted to the U.S., uh, doing his uh, Tai Chi or whatever that was, stark naked. That's one way to introduce a character. All of the character. I guess you don't need to worry about things flopping around uh, when you're doing uh, karate. Anyway, but he is a, pretty much a cold-blooded killer who, uh, kind of unlike Hans, Hans is more of a businessman. I mean, he'll kill if he has to, but I don't think he, I don't think Hans Gruber was going out of his way to murder anybody. And uh, here is uh, Dennis Franz as an overwhelmed police captain. And I like the uh, adversarial relationship between them and how it develops throughout the film. They do have a bit of an arc because, honestly, Franz spends most of the movie, or Lorenzo, rather, spends most of the movie screaming at McLean, trying to chase McLean away, trying to get rid of him, thinking he's causing more trouble when it turns out, well, one, he's trying to help. And uh, it turns out McLean is right. So once that happens, uh, his attitude toward, toward McLean will change. So Stewart and his men uh, fill this church with uh, a ton of equipment, and McLean, as McLean is figuring uh, out what's going on, apparently uh, for the the phone is answered, you see Twinkies on the desk. That could only mean Powell. Remember his famous scene in the uh, convenience store in the first film, buying all the Twinkies. And even though he tells the clerk there for his wife, clerk's not buying it. Even uh, and Powell is a little more jolly, and this time around, always laughing at McLean's jokes. I'm guessing these guys are buddies after the events of the first film. So at least he's back at L.A. He, he, like I said, he's fourth uh, build, but he, he's only in this one scene. Basically, and all he does is deliver uh, exposition. And uh, the uh, techno-incompetent uh, John McClane is, really starts to uh, begin here when he's having trouble with the fax machine. And uh, this uh, woman at the counter here is starting to hit on him. And, you know, he doesn't know which way to put the fax in. And so after uh, all that, we learn... That the guy McLean killed in the uh, baggage baggage area was had been declared dead for two years, and uh, he tells the uh, airport manager something is up, and the runway lights go out. But uh, before that, I didn't notice that McLean was smoking out in the airport concourse. Can you imagine someone doing that now? Of course, uh, at this point, it's clear that McLean is uh, inside security. So now, if you're not on the flight. There's no way you're getting inside. You used to be able to wait for somebody at the gate, but now you have to wait outside security by the desk. So nobody's believing him. They won't, they're asking uh, what he thinks is going to happen. And basically McLean says uh, someone is seriously going to fuck with the airport, which I guess to me that calls back a little bit from the first film. His line to the dispatcher is, 
Attention, whoever you are, this channel is reserved for emergency calls only. No fucking shit, lady! Do I sound like I'm ordering a pizza? So, the lights go out. It's obviously someone is seriously fucking with the airport. Tower's dead, which means the planes can't land. So, Stewart did all this to get the general's plane to land on our runway of uh, his choice. Now, as everything's going to hell, McLean is kicked out of the tower, and he ends up in his favorite place, in an elevator shaft. And this is where McLean uh, commented how the same thing happens to uh, the same guy twice, which is true. He may not want to travel very much after this because he doesn't want to get, especially around Christmas time. So this is where McLean meets Marvin, who helps him out, basically kind of helps him get around uh, the airport rather unseen. And uh, up in the sky, one of the pilots is uh, Cole Meany, best known to most of us as Chief Miles O'Brien from Star Trek The Next Generation and most notably Deep Space Nine. The character uh, starts out on Next Generation as uh, the con officer, then is later the transporter chief, and until he ends up as kind of the chief engineer of Deep Space Nine. So, we do get John bitching about being in a ventilation duct again, so there are a lot of notes that do go back to the first film. And one of the things I've read is <laughs> that Bruce Willis, although he enjoyed working with Rennie Harlan, he didn't enjoy this film as much because he thought it was too much like the first film. Something that's uh, quite remedied in uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance. So here are the bad guys at the Annex Skywalk. Uh, this is where the uh, the airport uh, tech guy here, Barnes, was going to uh, fix the power. And I like this guy. You know, at first, you know, like everybody else, he's not giving uh, McLean the uh, time of day. But he starts acknowledging McLean a little bit more after uh, McLean saves him here. He's basically uh, just a tech guy. It's his idea to uh, most of the stuff they they do to uh, get a hold of the plane is done by uh, the Sky Barnes. And he handles the uh, techno babble quite well. And uh, we had a brief cameo here by Robert Patrick a year before Terminator 2 puts him on the map. Good action sequence and uh, stunt work. And uh, so the bad guys did what they wanted to do. They took out Lorenzo's SWAT team, but they would have taken out Barnes as well. But McLean took out Stewart's team and uh, losing uh, all of them was not part of his plan. And since they were ordered not to attempt to uh, reestablish communication with the planes, he is going to kill some hostages, which in this movie, the hostages are the planes. And he gives uh, a plane uh, clearance to land, but he recalibrates ground level, lowering it 20 feet. So the plane crashes because it thinks it's still 20 feet above above the ground. And they hit the ground sooner than they think. Now, Meany here is, is speaking with an Irish accent, which I guess is his uh, native accent. He is a uh, native of Dublin. He spoke with, with with an American accent on Star Trek, which seems weird as you would think his accent wouldn't matter as much, even though the character was clearly Irish. Never thought of that before now, but there it is. So McLean tries to fly down the plane, but obviously they can't see him, and even if they could, at that point, it's probably too late to do anything about it. And the plane crashes, and pretty ex impressive explosion here, and at, le and at least for a moment after all this, after his failure to save the plane, McLean is crying. I mean, how many films, especially those uh, ultra-macho 80s action films, would actually let their action hero cry in the snow? So, the airport is pretty humbled here, and uh, and uh, and the hostages, the other airplanes, which Stuart and his men have control over in the sky, and at, the, at this moment, Holly's plane has 90 uh, minutes of fuel left. So, uh, here comes the army. We have... Uh, Colonel Stewart's mentor, he's leading this army unit, you know, the things that make you go, hmm, 
especially uh, McLean being uh, skeptical. So Barnes and, and his people come up with a plan to talk to the planes, basically using the uh, beacon at the outer marker to send a message other than just a beep. But, however, when the Army comes, um, McLean is kind of uh, pushed out of the room like a, like a kid almost, like almost as if uh, Trudeau and Grant are saying, all right, McLean, the adults are talking. You've done your bit. Get out. You think McLean's going to do that? Nah, I didn't think I didn't think you think you would think that either. So Barnes gets his message out and Thornburg hears it, which is a recipe for disaster in its own right. Oh, by the way, one of the things uh either McLean or somebody else wanted earlier in the film was uh after the Skywalk battle was to get the uh the code for the walkies for the bad guys, so uh he could listen in, listen in. Listening in on the walkie talkies was a huge part of McLean's success in the first film and He's kind of bummed that he couldn't do it right away, but he's very happy that he can do it here, and now he can at least hear his enemy. Meanwhile, on the plane, and Oriaga's coming in, he gets free, uh, kills this soldier that's guarding him, and uh, kills both the pilot and the co-pilot, even though the uh, co-pilot tried to uh, put up a little bit of a fight, which and the ensuing battle kind of blows out a window and throws the general's landing into uh, a bit of up upheaval. And uh, McLean is... Going somewhere. I don't exactly remember where he was going at this point, but he was coming out on the runway, probably trying to get to the plane. And he comes out of the grating as the plane is coming down the runway. He pretty much rolls out of the way at the uh, last second, and the plane barely notices the uh, upgrade when it hits it. You know, you would think that the way that was shot was it made the plane look a lot closer to McLean than that must have accidentally been. So the plane lands, and uh, McLean gets on it, decks the general, and then Stewart's men show up, and another firefight ensues. And McLean ends up locked in the cockpit. And they basically uh, shoot out the uh, plane windows, which I guess could be a callback to uh, the first film where Hans Gruber had Carl shoot out the glass because McLean was barefoot. But no barefoot action here, as uh, McLean has shoots the entire film. And now they all throw their grenades in. It's like five guys out here. They each have three grenades. So can you imagine 15 grenades in a cockpit to kill one guy? Seems like a bit of a waste, but I guess uh, But I guess they're taking no chances. And I love the look of horror on McLean's face as uh, all the grenades just kind of land in front of him. He's like, oh, looks like he's about to piss himself. And uh, basically what happens is uh, McLean finds his way to the ejector seat and ejects. And I love the look of horror on McLean's face as he flies off screen. It's not done. It, it's this must be a rear projection. Projection. It's poorly animated. I will say that. But he kind of just flies off to the right, screaming, and then eventually you just kind of see him landing with a parachute. So Holly apparently still works for Nakatomi, as judged by a folder that she was looking at while on the plane. McLean, uh, despite his efforts, is still getting crap from the authorities. The only one uh, giving him any kind of time of day is Barnes. And he's the one who turns uh, McLean onto the church as he figures that's the only place where Stuart and his men can hack into the system and make the plane sink to the tower. So Holly uh, asks the flight attendant, because they've been circling for a while, about the fuel situation. She lies and says that they're in good shape. But when, when she was last in the cockpit, she saw the low fuel light. So she knows that she's lying. But it's really the only thing she can say. Anything else will cause a panic. I mean, what is she going to say to all these people on this plane that they're running out of fuel and they're going to crash? Sometimes it's okay to lie. So, and, of course, a Holly beeps John as he's about to uh, take part in the attack on the church here. 
kind of reminds me of that, of that scene in one of the first episodes of 24 in the first season where Jack Bauer is and his wife are looking for their daughter who went to a party or something. Turns out she was kidnapped. And well, I'm not going to get into all that, but uh, she calls him. Jack forgets to uh, turn his phone off and uh, or his ringer off, at least. And uh, the phone goes off and the guy he's tracking uh, figures out where he is. And I'm shooting at him. Kind of the same thing happens here. So the army comes to the church to set up what we think is uh, going to be the big showdown. But there are blue bands on the guns, and it's the kind of thing where it's, don't blink, you might miss it, but it's there. And that's the clue, that's the clue here that something's not right. And at this point, McLean finally gets some backing from Grant as he puts a stop to Lorenzo's scream at McLean. So if you're paying attention to the uh, ammo here, both the Army and Stewart's men have blue banded ammo. So if you notice that, what happens next wouldn't be much of a surprise. So there's a battle at the uh, church, and nobody seems to go down, if you're noticing such things. And McLean takes out two guys, and now we have a snowmobile chase, because they're leaving on snowmobiles. And Stuart, at the end of the chase, changes to the red banded ammo, which apparently is not possible. You can't just switch out real bullets and blanks, uh, at least according to what I read in IMDb. And McLean is shooting back, and he gives the gun a weird look, almost to kind of like to say, what's going on here? And then after when McLean crashes on the snowmobile, he's like, I had him in my sight. I know I hit him. Then he looks in, then he opens the magazine, looks in and figures it out. And he's going to demonstrate this in a minute. Now, now we learn that Grant is in on the plot because he kills uh, one of the soldiers in his unit who was not. Apparently there was somebody who was a last minute replacement. And uh, since, since the kid's not one of them, he's got to go. So meanwhile, Thornburg hears the, uh, because with the help of his other guy here, and the equipment, they hear the uh, outer marker message, and uh, they hear Barnes' message about the hostages by the terrorists at the airport. So that's not good. And now McClane shows up in Lorenzo's office with the machine gun, and at this point, John McClane is officially out of fucks to give. Without saying a word, he just points the machine gun at Lorenzo and opens fire. And Lorenzo is hiding. Looks like he's about to crap himself. Until he realizes that the firefight at the church was all blanks. And this is where Lorenzo turns toward McLean. Especially since he's kind of out of options. He, he has to accept McLean's help now because the army, as he's realizing, has now betrayed him. So back to Thornburg, whose report causes a panic and now pandemonium at the airport. I mean, what did you think what would happen? And uh, it's showing that even though he's kind of frightened of Holly, Thornburg has learned nothing from the events of the first movie. He is still rotten. I mean, he threatens one of the uh, workers saying, you, you know, you get hold of whoever, whoever I'm telling you to get a hold of or you're going to be out of a job. You know, he's still threatening. He's still a prick. And as a journalist myself, I have mixed feelings on what Thornburg does here because he did his job. You know, he didn't do anything necessarily unethical. He broke the news that even Samantha Coleman on the ground didn't have. I mean, she had some of it, but, but you know, a first-person a first person account of being on a plane, circling and running dangerously low on fuel, that's the kind of thing careers are made of. And honestly, I don't know how there wasn't a panic at the airport already when the first plane crashes. Again, I have complicated feelings of what Thornbrook does here. And, you know, as much as you like seeing uh, Holly take him out with a stun gun because it's Thornburg. And what he did with her kids is was deplorable in the first film. But here, he's still self-serving. He's still him. He's still 
ass, but I'd break that story if I could, though. Because while everybody knew what was going on at the airport, nobody really knew what was happening in the sky. You know, and the loved ones of the people on that plane have a right to know that their loved ones are in danger. I mean, and and as far as the pandemonium at the airport now, why wasn't the airport cleared when the first plane crashed? I mean, the hostage situation was was really in the sky. There was nobody at this point at the airport to stop anyone from leaving. So anyway, moving on. So things are converging as we're reaching the ending. Uh, The bad guys are trying to escape, and uh, Holly's plane is attempting an emergency landing because they're low on fuel. And John is on the wing. He got the uh, TV crew, uh, Samantha Coleman TV crew. He promised some kind of exclusive. And uh, he's on the way questioning why he's there, although he already answered that in the in the uh, helicopter. He doesn't like to lose. His wife is on one of those planes, and he doesn't want to like to lose, which sounds better when, when you're sitting on a helicopter than it does when you're on the wing of an airplane. Now, as far as now, the fist fight's on the wing of the airplane. There is no way McLean should win this fight or even be in it. Grant is twice his size, probably a Green Beret. He should be kicking the crap out of McLean here. Although it does end quickly as uh, Grant gets sucked into the engine. You would think uh, such a big guy, you know, Grant's a big, burly black dude. You would think uh, getting sucked into the engine would do a little more damage than it did, but it, nope, it, that leaves uh, him a shredded major. And that leaves Stewart, who does kick the crap out of McLean with his uh, karate. Again, McLean is not in this fight, but... He manages to kind of luck his way through this as Stuart kicks McLean to the right stop and he uh, succeeds in dumping the fuel. And then he falls off the airplane and opens the lighter and we probably get my favorite yippee Kaye motherfucker of the uh, of the series. And everybody is so relaxed as the fire trail just follows the plane until it explodes. And the crash site kind of becomes a visual landing beacon and all the planes land. I guess it kind of... Uh, be- they forego the tower and kind of look, look both ways and landed. Gonna be a lot of planes in one area very soon. So here comes Holly in the John's waiting arms. She mentioned that she heard there were terrorists at the airport. And he's like, yeah, I heard something about that. And here he is bleeding all over. So I'm sure she realized that he was uh, involved in the solution. And this old lady who was sitting next to Holly throughout the entire film is, she's the one who had the stun gun and she was showing some, how feisty she was from the very first scene of the movie. At least, not the, maybe not the first scene of the movie, but the first time we saw her. You can talk, talk about how somebody comes over, she'll stun the bastard or something. No more uh, pepper spray. And the last shot of the movie is Carmine ripping up the uh, ticket that Vito gave him earlier in the film. McLean saves his airport. He likes McLean now. And the movie ends. And John and Holly are still together, still happy. At least as happy as uh, McLean and Holly are by... Die Hard with a Vengeance, they are split up again, and we never see Bonnie Bedelia's character again. So, this is an underrated movie. It is as much a Christmas movie as the first film is. It's a lesser sequel, but still worth watching. It's on par with what I think John McClane is supposed to be. Just this guy who gets caught in these situations and is in over his head. He's not superhero McClane yet, like he is in the fourth and fifth films. You know, once he uh, launches a car at a helicopter... John McClane has gone too far. But I like how his character developed throughout the two films. And he's an everyman, which is great about John McClane. You know, he's not seeking the action. He just gets caught up in it because he doesn't know not to, how not to get caught up in it. So that's all I've got. If you have any thoughts, manofscreen at gmail.com. 
my next man of screen extra. I don't know. Maybe I'll circle back around to the Mandalorian eventually. There's there's also uh, the Phase 3 Shared Fandom episode coming up at some point in 2021. So just uh, keep an eye out on the Facebook group and Twitter for more information. I'll announce it as I see fit. Feedback's always welcome. Manofscreen at gmail.com. If you want to join the conversation in the Facebook group, put Manofscreen Podcast in your search feed and the show should come up. Or you find the show on Twitter at Manofscreencast. Until next time, folks. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. The Man of Screen Podcast is produced by Mike Zemo, and all opinions expressed on the show are those of Mike Zemo and his guests and no one else. All music and sound reviews on the show are for review purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. All music and sound clips are copyright their original copyright owners. The Man of Screen is a member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network and can be found at www.twotruefreaks.com. Email to this show can be sent to manofscreen at gmail.com. And you can also leave the show a review on iTunes. That will help others find the show. Thank you for listening to the Man of Screen Podcast.